G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the round 13 preview edition. Feels like it's only about five seconds since we did the uh, round 12 review. And in fact, it's only uh, two and a half days really, but that's the nature of this mid-season. It's interesting really. We have fewer games, but uh, they're spread over more days. A A scheduling quirk I haven't quite got my head around. As I say, a very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you, Finey? I'm well. Good morning to yourself. Yeah, it's rapid-fire football, obviously. And Thursday's interesting that you'd take the split round and reintroduce Thursday football, but it gives a few gaps on the weekend. I feel for St Kilda supporters, such as myself, I've got to say. Why, nothing this week? Well, look... Oh, no, hang on, you're in Townsville. Townsville. So, Shanghai by yeah. Townsville. You'd need to be a well-heeled, very keen supporter to have seen much football in the flesh coming up for a month almost by the time we're back in Melbourne. That's a good point. All right, look, we're going to get straight into it, but uh, some housekeeping first. Uh, a big Thank you to our sponsors again. You bet. Andrew's Hamburgers, 80 years they've been in business, which is amazing. Uh, the family that run it now, uh, that have run it... Uh, They're not using the same stock, it's important to point out. Well, the turnover there is pretty quick. Not the same stock, but the same philosophy that just has... I bet you 80 years ago there were no Wagyu burgers with truffle and kale leaves. Oh, Wagyu off. <laughs> Thanks. The fact is, a beautiful burger, well-made, is still the best burger. 144 Bridport Street in Albert Park. And our mate Nick Spartels, well, how is his luck? Away on the weekend and his beloved Carlton win. But he's back to continue building great houses, the likes of Pendlebury, Dyson Heppel, Mike Sheen, renovations also. So if you live in the southeast suburbs of Melbourne, fairly close to town, Nick Spartels and Hardwick Build Co., great sponsors of the program. And uh, tell everyone to stay tuned a little later on. We're going to announce the announce winners the of our last competition and uh, tell There's you a about new, a, a new competition. You bet. All right, let's get into it. On Footyology Newsfeed. Okay, a bit on the agenda this week. I guess uh, finally the thing that's been bubbling along, well, for a couple of weeks now, and it's ramped up another uh, few ramp up decibels, I guess, with uh, a couple more incidents, is this issue about uh, crowd behaviour and specifically abuse of umpires. And um, it appears a crackdown on fan behaviour, although interestingly, the AFL put out a news release yesterday claiming there'd been absolutely no change to policy, which I've got to say I find a little hard to believe. Well, look, uh, and we also can include in this the extraordinary situation where a fan, a Collingwood supporter, apparently was warned by police to stop barracking so loudly against Melbourne. Mm -hmm. That number that was up on the screen at the MCG was rung up by some Melbourne supporters and the policeman, if we can take this supporter's word as being correct, and no reason why we wouldn't, uh, sort of asked him, asked the policeman, well, I didn't swear, I wasn't being racist or sexist, or, and the policeman said, look, I've been monitoring you, you've done nothing wrong, but we have to respond because your a report came through. Well... Like a lot of these things, there's often a couple of sides to the story. And um, The Age had a story I saw. It's probably still up there now. I saw it last night. But that particular supporter, they, um, <laughs> as happens now, they had a look at his social media stuff and there was a video of him taken um, at the grand final last year where he was screaming 
directly at the camera about how we were going to something to these somethings. Um, and it was pretty full on. And I was gonna say, uh, I've got to say, if it was something like that, um, I'd have absolutely no problems with him being um, told to pull his head in because it, that was pretty full on. And uh, yeah, so there's a, a couple of versions of that. However, if what I'm not disbelieving he, his version of events about Queen's birthday either, if um, he's done nothing more than shout at a particular volume, well, I think that's pretty... Ridiculous, and then of course there was the Carlton supporter last Saturday who um, uh, initially the story appeared to be that he had called umpire Matthew Nichols a bald-headed flog, and that was the objection. But it, uh, according to the AFL, it turned out that the objection was that he ran at well, he didn't run at the umpire because they're going down the race, but he ran towards the um, side of the race where the tunnel is. Uh, in a uh, threatening manner. So that was the apparent concern there. But again, you know, like I, I can't help but feel, uh, and I have, I've written about this in the columns up on footyology.com.au if you want to have a look. I, I, don't, I sort of understand where the AFL is coming from in, in terms of wanting people to, um, you know, sort of change their attitudes to umpires and umpiring. I mean, they shouldn't just be a free hit for everyone. I mean, they obviously perform a valuable and, uh, you know, completely um, integral role. But you can't batter people into submission with this thing. I mean, it's it's culturally become, rightly or wrongly, part of the game. And you're not going to change behaviours by wading in, you know, sort of staying to eject people from crowds. You've got to try and sort of hasten slowly and make it a cultural sort of learning rather than just saying, okay, you change your attitude to umpires or you're out of this crowd. And how do you do that? Well, you do it by measures that I think used to be more prominent, really. You know, things like what's your decision segments, um, things like making the umpires more accessible, you know, not sort of having to have them behind this big sort of iron curtain and occasionally one's dragged out and we get to hear or see them. Um, And things like... And, you know, these sorts of things have gone by the wayside. Um, post-match functions between teams where they mingled with each other and mingled with the umpires. And it's amazing, isn't it? When you think back to the 1980s, we can all recall, or 70s, 80s, even 90s, we can all recall the names of half a dozen umpires off the top of our heads. I don't, I don't reckon that's the case now. And people know Ray Chamberlain and... Um, initially, they got to know him because he talked a lot to the um, to the players out in the field, and he was small, and uh, he seemed to have a propensity for theatre and whatever. And then we've got to know him, I guess, more public publicly as they've allowed him to speak about a range of things, and he's he's done some great stuff for charity too. Um, he uh, he and I think his brother have. Um, for a number of years now, done a, a walk to raise money for um, depression and suicide prevention and stuff like that. And he's a, I, I came back from Adelaide with him on the on the weekend, actually. He's a wonderful guy, Ray. And I just think if people got to see that the human face of the umpiring department more, they'd be less inclined to see them as the enemy all the time. But that's, you know, it's a cultural thing. You can't just go, okay, you will be more accepting of umpires or we're going to, th- we're going to throw you out of a crowd, can you? Really well put. I've been on both sides of the fence here. I've been the rabid umpire-hating supporter back in my younger days, and then I've been an umpire. So when I was an irrational St Kilda fan, people say you still are, but particularly irrational and just blame the umpires on all of our woes. Can you believe I went through the 80s honestly thinking that St Kilda were as good as everybody else, just hard done by the umpires? I mean, you look back and think how bloody insane you were. Yeah, well, four wooden spoons in a row would yeah. sort of speak to the contrary. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, we were as good as Hawthorne and Essendon. No problems. The and you put it really well. You cannot force supporters. Just have a look at this booing experience. You can't tell supporters what to do, how to behave at the game. Australians in particular, as a group and individually, do not like being forced to think or behave in a certain way. It's our inalienable right in this country. Our freedom is expressed 
at the football in everyday life by behaving how we like within the constraints of the law. And there's no way you can legislate against people booing an umpire or a player or saying something against an umpire. And you're right, we don't know who the umpires are. Say for Ray Chamberlain, and I think his appearance played a bit in that in the beginning, Matthew Nichols, nicknamed Simon Overland by yeah, Rex, Rex back up, in yeah. the day, and Ellie Gluftsis, because Ellie's a female, there are countless umpires who simply go about their business. Maybe Justin Schmidt. Silent M, I used to say, you see, disrespectful. But the fact is, you can't force change. Attitudes can change and need to change because at the lower level, the things that you say amongst 30,000 people taken back to local football become direct, audible insults to umpires. And young umpires starting out, gee, some of the stuff that I copped, unacceptable, now, this is where it can be enforced, and that is players need to show respect for umpires, and I don't think we have a problem with that in league football, AFL, mm. but commentators, I think, drive a lot of the contempt for footballers, and a lot of it comes on our biggest stage every week, Friday night football. Now, I'll tell you this. I actually listened quite carefully to Brian Taylor last week, mm. read the umpires, in the Melbourne Collingwood game. And he was scathing of a couple of the de- a couple of the decisions. Obviously, that one with Jeremy Howe, one that you thought wasn't that bad, was really taken up by all the commentators. And there was another decision later in the day that Brian kept referring to. Now, here's the interesting thing: there was a piece of play where Max Gone had the ball, and he was hammered by I think Brody Grundy. And the commentary by Brian Taylor was, tries to get rid of the ball. Now, what he did was, he went to handball it, and he couldn't. So he dropped it on his foot really cleverly and kicked it about a metre to the player he was going to handball to. And Brian goes, he got rid of it. Gee, I don't know if that was legal. Oh, boy, that's not allowed. You know, that, that should have been holding the ball. Well, hang on, Brian, you've made as fundamental an error in commentary as any umpire has ever made on the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where's 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 the where's the where's the process there? Yeah, no, it's a that's a really good point. I mean, and and players make you know uh, dozens of mistakes of one sort or other during a game. The thing with the commentators, I think this is a big part of it. Actually, the commentators, you know, we tend to have more and more former players now, and they're very um, uh, sort of condescending towards the umpires, and not they just, never and they never want. To say anything bad about their fellow players. Yeah. They will literally look at an, at an incident that has two parts to it. You know, a, a player maybe with a reportable incident. And they, they feel for the player that's been laid out. Yeah. And then they want to support the player that's hit him. And the only refuse, refuge they have for their refuse is to turn on the umpire. But um, the point I was going to make was, re they're more... Accepting of the field umpires, the ones that the, it's just open slather on are the boundary umpires and the goal umpires. You know, they only mention them if they stuff up a throw in or they look particularly officious when they're giving the all clear signal for a goal or whatever. And they just they treat them like these sort of figures of fun. And I get really annoyed by it. And this is where when I get annoyed by that whole sort of swaggering jock thing. You know, like where the where the tough guys that used to play and you're all sort of in our shadow, you know. So that's all part of it too. But, however, um, you you need to bring people along with you to, to change this attitude. And for the AFL to say yesterday that there's no difference in the policy this year and last year, it, it's patently absurd. I mean, is, if, if this sort of stuff was going on last year, we would have heard about it via people... As has happened this time, people contacting media outlets and saying this is going on. That wasn't happening. So how can they say it's the same policy? Somewhere along the line, and it could very well be, a, you know, one of those communicate Chinese whisper things. You know, someone at the AFL said, you know, we need to come down harder on people that are uh, shocking at the footy, and then that gets communicated to ground staff, and then they pass it on to the security guys, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it clearly has changed. 
And you you agree that this has been a bit overly draconian the last few weeks? Yeah, I don't know about the last few weeks, but I know that the change is very real. And take cheer squads, for example. You know, Carlton cheer squad sanctioned for their attitude to the umpire. Richmond cheer squad having to contact the AFL to find out what they can <laughs> and cannot say. <laughs> but the manifesto has been in place for quite a while as to what can be said by a cheer squad. Look, I got caught in the changing of attitude about three years ago. Yeah. When I took my daughter to a Richmond Port Adelaide game and she liked, as a Richmond supporter, sitting near the cheer squad. And I was having a bit of fun. And I just, Pepinard was kicking the ball in there. He's a weird sort of cat. Mm-hmm. And I was yelling at him, what did Macmillan ever do to you? Because his name used to be Jasper Pittard Macmillan. Ah, oh, didn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. And I had a grand official come up to me and say, if you continue with that, you'll be kicked out of the ground. But how would they have known what you were talking about? No idea. Because I said, excuse me, I'm not swearing at him. I'm and he said, you're saying something personal to the player? Oh, really? Yep. If you say it again, you'll have to leave the ground. I said, he can't even hear me. And I just despaired and sat there because I was with my daughter and didn't take it up. Uh, oh. oh, at that point, I did have my media tag on, and he looked at it and goes, "Oh, that now, oh, that makes sense now." Oh, really? Because he saw who I was. <laughs> okay. All right, uh, we'll we'll leave that discussion there just quickly. Um, the coaching uh, situation, which we're going to be hearing about a, a fair bit for the second half of the season, obviously. North Melbourne and Carlton have spots to fill. They have caretakers in place at the moment, and their record at the moment is 100%, two from two for Reece Shaw and uh, David Teague, one from one. It's interesting, though. I, there seems to be this perception that everyone gets the new coach spike, finally. So I went through and actually did some number crunching last night. Since 2000... Um, and, uh, yeah, I've written about this today as well. You can read this on Footyology tomorrow. Uh, since 2000, we've had 22 caretaker coaches. Uh, how many do you reckon have won their first games? About 11. Eight. Yep. Eight out of 22. Uh, so the strike rate there is 36.4%. And then I thought, well, don't just look at the first game. Let's look at how they went for the remainder of a the season they were in charge. What do you reckon that record is? Percentage-wise. 30%? 34.9%. So they've been in charge for 149 games. They've won 52 of them and drawn three. So, Which is better than the percentage of the teams that they were taking over would have been. At the time. Yeah, coaches weren't being sacked for winning one in three. Yeah, no, no, that's that's true. But, I mean, it's sort of like there's been this myth perpetuated, like it all, you know, it all turns around. And w- what is interesting, though, is that the three guys since 2000 um, who have had the winningest caretaker records are Matthew Primus, who won five out of seven, um, Paul Ruse, who won six out of ten in 2002 at Sydney, and Scott Campriali, who's, though it was only half a season, that is one of the most underestimated coaching efforts of all time. Of course, he came in after the tragic death of Phil Walsh. Unforeseen circumstances, hopefully never to be repeated. And he got the Crows to seven wins from 11 games, including a final. Now, why I say this is, because if you go back just beyond 2000 to Jeff Geeshan, Geeshan won four out of five as a caretaker coach. And on the back of that, Richmond appointed him. What's their common denominator here? Port Adelaide appointed Matthew Primus on the back of that effort. And Paul Ruse, of course, and people power saw Sydney appoint him rather than Terry Wallace, who was all but over the line. So there's been a shift away from this. So post-Matthew Primus, there's been, I think, 11 caretaker coaches and none of them have ended up inheriting the job, and it's like clubs have sort of overcorrected. But I think um, the Camperiali one is interesting. He, I, I, I'm not sure I've heard him mentioned too loudly as a possible candidate for Carlton, but I, I think he's interested, and surely he'd have to be. He's been an assistant for a fair while now. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think the 
there'll be an interesting if if Teague and Reece Shaw continue to win or win their share of games, I think it'll be very interesting to see. A, whether that causes fans to sort of start a push for them to get the job, and B, whether clubs would adjust their thinking appropriately. A couple of um, points out of this, well done with all the research and statistical fact, very good. Something that might count against Reece Shaw is, interestingly, nothing to do with AFL. Maybe Manchester United might step Manchester United might be a problem for Reshaw. Something a bit more recent than Matthew Primus or Jeff Gershon. Because um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer took over from Jose Mourinho. Yeah, after and, his second. Yeah. And the change in attitude of the players and results in the first couple of months were stark. Huge improvement. Yeah. And he was given a permanency in the job and an extension. And almost from that point onwards, United reverted more to the team that they were when Mourinho was fired. Yeah. And now the Red Devils have got a devil of a problem. Well, maybe uh, maybe they can just keep them on as caretaker coaches. You know, what's that, what's that old phrase about girlfriends? You know, treat them mean, keep them keen. Well, isn't it funny because <laughs> Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, do you know what he was known as during his playing career? Well, I remember him, but what was he known as? Super sub. He oh, was, the European... Uh, champions, like he scored in that, didn't he? And he famously, but he also famously played that position and with great success throughout much of his yeah, career. Right. Yeah, well, so. he's actually been a super sub as a manager yeah. as well. Yeah. So you're right. Maybe he could be just kept on the bench as an emergency. But but I think um, the the ground for coaches now is more fertile. You know, we've talked about this how they, they've come from a variety of backgrounds, and we've seen the likes of. Uh, Don Pike, Chris Fagan, Luke Beveridge come into the system, you know, yep. having even been out of the system for a while or, or done different roles other than coaching within the um, the, the club environment. So, um, you know, I don't think the lack of profile, you know, so with David Teague, I mean, Ray Shaw has a reasonable profile. I don't think you're going to get the sort of people power thing that, that you had with Paul Roos because he was a massive name. and Sure, and in Sydney that was a familiar name which they require more of than probably other clubs and, you know, just have a look at Barassi's appointment there back in the day. The thing with Carlton which is most interesting for me is that they went against type when they gave Brendan Bolton the job because they are a club that goes for the spectacular, goes for the headline, yeah. and they did not in the case of Bolton, which makes me think that they're really going to have to fight against their inner selves, their their own personality, to appoint a coach again of a low profile, yes. such as David Teague. Absolutely. No, I, I think I think the Bolton thing, and even going back before that to Wayne Britton, I think it makes it far more likely that the next coach is going to be a Brad Scott type. Yep. And Brad Scott is an obvious candidate, isn't he? He's available and he's, he's just coached. Um, but yeah, it, it's it, it's interesting the various ways you can go with it. And I, I just think the more I thought about it last night, the more I thought, you know, if Teague and, and um, Shaw keep doing well, I don't think you so far in these couple of weeks, there's not that assault of names coming at you, is there? I mean, you with the vacant coaching job, you used to straight away you'd see the articles with, here are the candidates. That's right. And you'd be reading their names every day. That's not happening at the moment. No, there's no coaches in waiting demanding positions as used to be the case. Yeah. Oh, well, it's an interesting one. I reckon we'll be talking about it a fair bit more um, in the ensuing weeks of this season. All right, that's enough for Newsfeed this week. Time to talk media. On Footyology, Media Watch. All right, I'm wondering if we should have made this the rant off because I've been thinking about this this morning, as I awake from my slumber, and the more I think about it, Finey, the angrier I get. And um, we've talked about this already this season, but I, it's just, it's, it's got me really angry. And I speak about statistics on the AFL website, or the lack of them. Now, I tried to get some answers from people, but even people I spoke to who work for AFL Media couldn't really answer my question, which was, why midway through a season 
did they suddenly revamp their stats category on their website so you actually have access to far fewer stats than you did? Now, they will turn around and say, oh, but it's all set up like Supercoach. There's pictures of each player and you can get their ranking points. And and my response to that is, yeah, it seems to be more and more geared towards fantasy football competitions and less towards people who just want some access to stats. Now, if you want me to be specific, what I'm talking about here is uh, previously on their, the AFL website statistics page, you could go to teams or players. And in each case, you could order the stats um, from you know uh, highest to lowest or the other way around on for, for any particular category. And um, particularly in a team sense... Th- they had a lot of categories. There was, I think, up to probably 20-odd, even more statistical categories. You couldn't display them all at once. You had to, um, you know, I think you got a limit of about 12, but that was good. I mean, if you didn't weren't interested in seeing ranking points, you could get rid of that and put in, um, you know, uh, running bounces or something like that. So they had contested possessions, uncontested possessions, uh, clearances, centre clearances, tackles. Uh, what else? There were, there were some quite, you know, sort of, um, uh, what's the word? You know, some quite technical stats in there, but you had access to them. And I use that quite frequently. Um, and so did a, a lot of other footy media I know, and um, I'm sure plenty of punters did too, because punters are more informed now and they like to be very informed you could do that with teams or players now somewhere along the line and i reckon it was about round four or five from memory i just i went to do that one day and all of a sudden hang on a sec there was i there was no choice of categories the categories had been reduced to the absolute barest minimum i.e games wins losses points for points against percentage um, that was about it. And uh, all these, the capacity even to order those stats had been taken away. And I thought, when I spoke about it, I think I made the qualifier then, well, we're just going to keep an eye on this because I think it's possible it's just a blue or something. Well, it's clearly not a blue. They've just done it. And they've done it on the sly. You know, they've, someone has said, oh, yeah, look, let's dispense with that and hopefully no one will notice well hello guys we've noticed and i reckon it's crap finding and tell me if i'm getting overly angry here but the afl (laughs) runs the competition their website should be giving us or their fans as much information as possible and certainly not taking it away throughout the course of a season i reckon it's outrageous i mean i understand that and you're professionally uh, affected by this, then I'm not sure how many fans would actually be directly affected by this. I think, you know, there are, what do they call them, anoraks out there who (laughs) would love a deep statistical analysis of the games. Maybe they're just responding to fans' needs and feedback and don't feel that there is a deep need for that level of statistical transparency. Yeah, no, maybe, but why would you get rid of it? Like, it's not it's not getting in the way of something else. Yeah, I cost. Well, you're talking about a competition that is able to spend ridiculous amounts on games in China and AFLX and... Um, yeah, again, that I mean, that gets back to this thing about priorities. Um, I, I I just think that's wrong. You know, I mean, there are there are other websites out there now which have more statistical information than the official AFL website, and I think that reflects very poorly on the AFL. Yeah, look, I'm not as invested in that information probably as you are. Maybe I should be, but I. I don't see it as a problem. And at the moment, I still regard the AFL's news service as the best to go to regarding AFL football. I've had a look at whether there have been marked changes given a new website manager and the fact that that person isn't a traditional AFL person. 
and I'm still very comfortable with what is provided in terms of injury, selection, um, information. I like their information from leagues around Australia that players play in, in other words, the VFL, Sandfall, Waffle, Neeful. So that remains, to me, good content. And their, breaking, their level of coverage of stories of interest, breaking stories, is pretty, for me, time accurate. So I've got no problems with the, at the moment, the news reporting and information that I get from the AFL website. I'm still comfortable with it, which is, I'm very pleased with it. Okay, all right, no, fair enough. Um, here's one just right off the top of my head, which I, I haven't um, flagged with you, so I'll be interested in your response. But did you read uh, Mark Robinson's story in the Herald Sun the other day about gambling? And, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was very interested. I heard Nick Rewalt's follow-up on 1116 SEN, mm. and, it, you know, he talks about players in his time at St Kilda very much a lot of talk was around gambling. And, in fact, his time at St Kilda, there was a lot of talk around racing, betting on races. Now, mm. I know that Sam Fisher um, was involved in racing and I, I don't know, I think continues to be so, but has a real interest in thoroughbred racing, not just from a gambling perspective, but we talk about players betting heavily on on foreign sports, you know, NBA finals, etc. And, look, it, it has been an ongoing problem too much time on their hands, a lot of disposable income. But this is a an issue that plagues society and there's only so much intervention that AFL clubs and AFL themselves can do before it becomes invasive and personally... And, and basically, it, it's the right of any person to perform, do this. If it's legal, they're allowed to do it and... Should players be allowed to stumble and fall on their own, or do they need the crux of their club and the AFL to help them along the way? Well, what, yeah, uh, look, it was interesting stuff. There were two things I'm coming at here. Uh, one is why the story came, uh, emerged now, and um, I'm just guessing here, I haven't spoken to Robbo about it. it, might be something completely different, but I've become aware. I'm not generally one who hears lots of whispers about, oh, do you hear about this, do you hear about that? Oh, it doesn't, it's not a huge motivation for me. You know, I don't go out there and go, oh, you know, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And occasionally I'll hear stuff. And it just so happens in the past uh, week, I've heard two different stories pertaining to very well-known players and um, allegedly massive gambling issues. Mm. I think one of them in particular um, is... Current players? Uh, yeah, both current players. Yep. And um, I think one of them in particular, and I'm not going to go any further, I think one of them in particular might have provided the motivation for this current story. So, um, you know, the it's, it's a pretty big world, the AFL media, but it's still in some ways quite small, and I suspect... A lot of people are hearing the same stuff. So, well, the Jungle Drums did beat loud when Brendan Favola was playing, and yeah. he would later confirm those stories. And they, you know, serious gambling issues that involved then mental health issues of a very serious nature. So, at that point, the club obviously steps in. Mm. Yeah, no. So that that was, I, I guess, why I brought it up as sort of why why now, and that might explain it. The other interesting element to this, though, is that the um, the woman Robbo spoke to, was it Jan Beams, I think? It definitely Beams. Apologies if I've got the first name wrong. But um, she has had a, uh, a bit of a tiff with the AFL Players Association because she wasn't registered. Uh, what was it? She wasn't registered in, in her uh, qualifications to give advice on this in their belief. So she's spoken to Robbo, and that has pissed off the AFLPA. And Paddy Dangerfield came out and sort of said, and the AFLPA were pretty um, annoyed with Robbo for not cont- contacting them for another side of the story. And this, I was just going to point out, I'm not having a go at Robbo here, but this is one area where journalism across the board, not just talking about footy journalism, has really changed. And that is once upon a time, 
if you were chasing a news story and it involved conflicting views on something, you would absolutely ensure that you got both sides of that argument. Even if, even if saying in the article or in the report that you contacted side B or you contact the AFL Players Association and they refuse to comment. Mm, yeah. That would be due diligence. Correct. It? And that that just I mean it, it still happens sometimes but there's many times now where that doesn't happen and I think that's got a lot to do with the race to get stuff out as quickly as possible um which isn't ideal but that would be that would worry me less than were this a consequence of someone going, oh, hang on, I don't want to go and get the opposite view because it'll weaken the story. And that really worries me. Remember Frontline? Ah, yeah, yeah. Well, and Frontline, you know, Frontline is now 25 years ago, you know. So um, what's interesting, though, Fanny, is that uh, without getting too political here, there are some issues where... They seem to do uh, go to inordinate lengths to get both sides of an argument, i.e., climate change. So we'll get, attach the same weight to you know a hundred qualified scientists' views about climate change, as uh, and then go out and get the views of one sort of skeptic, um, and and make sure that those views are given a, a sort of credence that a lot of people would argue they don't deserve. So we do it for some issues, but not for others. So. Um, yeah, look, the gambling thing, it comes up periodically, but uh, this these little whispers I've heard over last week have um, sort of confirmed for me it's definitely an issue. And incidentally, in, in both these cases, I think they were talking about horses then too, which sort of surprises me. I was of, of the view that a lot of this stuff was going on in American sports, sports but apparently, yeah. you know, horse racing is still quite popular with the young guys. So... It's an issue. I think you're going to be hearing more about it. And uh, just keep your eye, and and I would say this with any sort of reporting now in any major media organisation, don't just read the story and digest the information. Ask yourself, why is it being written? Whose purposes does it suit to be written? Um, Are both sides of the argument being expressed? And um, if you start drilling down into those sorts of things, uh, my tip is you'll start becoming as cynical about a lot of the media as um, most of us have become in recent times. Now you've got first-hand understanding through your time at the age of what was the process expected of you by your senior editors. And I'm sure that as you made your way through the ranks, you were explained what good journalism is. Yeah, maybe, well, maybe that guidance isn't there anymore. Oh, it's absolutely not there. No, there's no, no. Look, even people who are still part of the mainstream media would admit that the the quality isn't what it was. You know, the checks and balances aren't there. The quality of the uh, the news being and 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 copy being generated isn't there. The checks and balances aren't there. Um, and it, you know why? It's a damn shame. Do I know why? Because, um, because the readers aren't there. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, Ultimately, that's the problem. <clears throat> Pardon me. As a, as print journalism, well, it's the readers aren't there, and the revenue isn't. Yeah, there. but that's what I mean. Yeah. As the revenue isn't there, as, as print journalism is replaced by new forms of media, mm. the amount spent in the end filters not down, but filters up almost to a lack of strength probably editor and sub-editor level. Well, newspapers particularly are going to look back on the introduction of uh, the internet and online media and how that was handled and go, that was the moment where we signed our own death warrant because uh, they gave it away free. And and now, you know, people are putting up paywalls and, you know, I think most people would accept now that it's fair enough to ask a premium to read quality journalism. But because initially... They, they didn't take the internet seriously and just put everything, chucked it up free. People came to expect that. And they're now not prepared to pay for that. And the Spot on. You know, I go to articles from the Age and the Herald Sun that appear to be there to be read. And then you see that there's only paywall. the first... Yeah, there's only the first half of the first paragraph. You don't then go and subscribe, do I, you? You I, just I, move on. Correct. I haven't subscribed. I just look for information on that report elsewhere. Yes, yeah, so the horse has bolted. And and in revenue terms, um, the uh, 
digital advertising revenue has never been anywhere near the sort of revenue they attract for print advertising, which or is the revenue that they lost. Yeah, yeah, which is which is sort of partly why print remains a thing, even though people have been saying for years, oh, you know, that there won't be any papers soon. At the moment, there are papers because that uh, advertising in print remains a fundamental source of revenue. Anyway, we've drifted off the case a bit there. One last thing, finally, before we move on. Um, I was doing the boundary for 3AW on, on Queen's birthday at the uh, Big Freeze. How, how were your throw-ins? Uh, yeah, they were good. They were good. They got a got a bit of power, getting about twenty meters inside the field of play. Um, no, I did part of uh, part of my pre-match uh, duties. I did go around to uh, stand with a whole heap of other media around where the slide was, in the vain hope of speaking to some of the people who went down the slide. And uh, not unusually for TV, there was a bit of an over the top security presence uh, and the people came off a slide and they were sort of whisked away under a curtain and there were people standing around with wristbands and stuff making sure that you know only people with wristbands could walk in a certain direction and uh and i after about five minutes i sort of stopped and said to oh there are a few few of us around there michael roberts from triple m and julian de stoop who was doing the abc and we just all sort of looked at each other and went hang on isn't this for a charity? And like, isn't it? Wouldn't it be good for that charity to have these people talking to as many media outlets as possible? Uh, and I don't know if it was a, a sort of a, just a lack of organisation, or um, you know, say Channel Seven as the broadcaster was being narky about it, but uh, it didn't it wasn't a great look. I don't think. And TV to me just has this incredible capacity to take itself so seriously. At a time when there's, uh, you know, fifty times the audience t- free to air TV gets now watching Swedish YouTube gamers sitting there playing the latest PS4 products. So, Harrison Gert, <laughs> well, how about opening just opening toys? Yeah, well, yeah. Now um, I opened the box. Yeah, um, what's his name again? Pootie Pie. Yeah. I don't know if Pootie Pie's still a thing, but he was pretty bloody massive last time I bothered to look him up. Anyway, something to keep in mind, but uh, TV, get your head out of your ass, will you? All right, let's move on. On Footyology, previews with Punch. All right, let's get uh, into them. Uh, six games again, second of the buy rounds, and a couple of really uh, big clashes between finals uh, aspirants or members of the top eight or would-be members of the top eight and a couple of uh, far-flung clashes as well. Kicks off this evening, Thursday evening. We're back to Thursday night games, Adelaide-Richmond. And uh, I reckon for most of this season you would have looked at this clash and thought, wow, this is going to be one of the games of the year. Well, it still could be, but only if we are to see a miracle, you know, Richmond backs-to-the-wall type performance because, boy... They cannot take a trick on the injury front. Trent Cotchen gone again with a hamstring. And now Shane Edwards as well. They join Alex Rance, Jack Rewalt, David Asprey, Kane Lambert, Toby Nankervis, Jaden Short and Jack Ross on the sidelines. They've lost two in a row now, both comprehensive losses to North Melbourne and Geelong. And uh, they're in a spot of bother, the Tigers. Can they pull out a miracle finding? Well... You know, this year they've done some great backs to the wall stuff, and interstate has been probably the saviour for them getting out of town. And you know, clubs under siege do like getting the players together, travelling, really purposeful when they've been on the road. I'm not writing them off, but it just looks a step too far now, doesn't it? Especially because Adelaide are playing a better brand of football. And that win against GWS was professional enough for me to say that Richmond can't win this. Yeah, I, I agree. It was uh, I was there. It was um, it was a massive last quarter from them. And it was a, we've talked all year about how they've sort of stumbled along and got some wins here and there, but never really looked like getting back to where they were. I thought that last quarter last week was as close as they've come to recreating that 2017-type form. They're, they're and there is a confidence that comes with a strong last quarter. So their win over Melbourne yep. and GWS means that they you know, they get in the huddle at three-quarter time and have that real self-belief that they're going to finish the game off well. 
Yeah, and and their their senior guys really stood up. Um, you know, I thought Walker, you know, massive mark and goal from him. Eddie Betts doing Eddie Betts stuff again. Rory Sloan. Um, you know, the, the key men really stood up. So I think, yeah, more and more, I'm thinking yeah, this could be the start of a a surge by the Crows. And if it is to be the case, you just have to win games like this at home against an opponent that's down on its luck and um, looking like it's in bother. You know, what was really interesting was Don Pike signalling that Riley O'Brien is not going to be replaced by Jacobs just for the sake of it. Yeah. And, 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 and that he will hold his place yeah. until, you know, until form demands that he is replaced. So, you know, Source might be on the way out. I was going to say, sauce might be toast. Couldn't <laughs> quite find the right analogy. Um, yeah, but uh, Adelaide for both of us. Uh, yeah, I think the Tigers are in a definite spot of bother. All right, let's move on to Marvel Stadium Friday evening and clash of those fierce rivals from the 1980s and still fierce rivals now, finally, Essendon and Hawthorne. And uh, there's a bit of commemoration going on this week. It is 15 years since the Lion in the Sand game. Yeah. Is, is that now an anniversary, a celebratable anniversary, 15 years? Well, it's interesting. I've actually written a thing for Essendon's uh, website on, on the five big you know, moments or games out of the, um, the rivalry. And I've snuck Lion in the Sand in there, but only... Just, I mean, a couple of premiership wins and a couple of big finals. I would have thought probably took precedence, but it's it's achieved an almost mythical status, hasn't it? Anyway, back to the present. Um, I bet Leon Baker is at number one. Well, the grand final wins are yeah, and and if it was ap- actual moments, yes, Leon Baker absolutely number one. Both Essendon and Hawthorne five six at the moment. Um, Bombers have had the week off. Did the Hawks have the week off? Yeah, they did have. They both had the week off. So that throws an interesting dimension into it. I think the Dons are a pretty reasonable chance to get uh, Stringer, Shield, and Fantasia all back. Uh, maybe not all three, but maybe two of those three. That would make a big, big difference. Hawthorne, of course, will be without Chad Wingard. Um Hawks' record against the Bombers of late has been um, pretty dominant. I think it's nine out of the last eleven, and I don't think Essendon's beaten them under un, at Docklands either for about ten years. So, if that means anything to you, um, the Hawks are set up to win. But uh, look, a fifty-fifty call this one. I, I don't think um, Essendon's form against Carlton. You know, how do you tell how good a win that was? It wasn't a great win. It was an okay win. Uh, I think have, having some players back is important. And I think, you know, if they're aspiring to anything more this year, they simply have to win. So I'm tipping the Bombers, but with no great confidence whatsoever. I'm going to go for Essendon on the back of getting a couple of those players back, particularly Fantasia, who I believe is likely to play. He's very important down forward for them. And Hawthorne are... Uh, just a middle-of-the-road team. Maybe Essendon are no more, but aspirationally, using Nick Rewalt's favourite word, they are more. And as you said, if that is serious, then it's now or never. So a bit of a, a line in the sand game 15 years on because the line will be drawn through the team that loses this game and I'll say Hawthorne will lose it. So I'm going for the Bombers. Nicely done. I like the way you... Uh adapted that uh, that phrase. All right, let's go to uh, that rather unusual AFL venue of Townsville. Saturday afternoon, 1.45. It is amazing, isn't it? St Kilda go from Jingwan Stadium, Shanghai, to, uh, what's the name of this? Riverside Stadium in Townsville. Uh, it's a long way from Marab and Finey. They take on Gold Coast. And uh, these two sides not travelling well, it's fair to say. The Suns have now lost... Is it eight in a row, I think? Uh, Their season is starting to very disturbingly resemble what happened to them last year. And I think the Saints have only won one of their last six. So they're struggling to stay in touch with the top eight now. Disastrous trip to China. um, Finally, lost Jaron Geary with a broken leg. Half a dozen guys uh, got ill. 
Um, how will they have recovered, do you think? Yeah, recovery is important. The three players that didn't play, Mackenzie, Marsh and Blake Akers, are all available for selection. And I think they might all get selected. I think Jimmy Webster's available again. Hanabry's available, but we'll have one more game in the VFL. And Jake Carlisle might be playing in the VFL this week. So there is a bit of... Light. Yeah, light at the end of the tunnel. Look, Gold Coast have got players out. They've Tuke Miller's only 50-50 to play, apparently. So you just, you'd want to tip St Kilda. And I, I will tip St Kilda because I excuse them a little bit for their worst game of the season against Port Adelaide. Otherwise, even though they lost games during that one out of six run, the performances against Collingwood, GWS and Adelaide weren't terrible. So, and West Coast. I'll go for St Kilda, and here's a reference you'll understand. Um, both teams have lost their Mojo Jojo, but in Townsville, I gave the Saints. Mojo Jojo. Of course, if you've got kids, or if you were a kid about 10 years ago, Powerpuff Girls. And why did I put that from, reference in? Uh, because of the venue. Oh, yeah, Townsville. That's the fictional, well, not so fictional town in which they lived. Very good work by you, Fonny. So um, I'm going for the Gold Coast here. I just think that loss to North Melbourne last week wasn't that bad. They sort of held their nerve a bit. They're not, I think um, the last couple of weeks, you know, hasn't been completely abjectly woeful. You know, there's been a a few up points there. and I I suspect the... um, (laughs) Sounds a bit funny, but I, I think they might adapt better to the conditions... Um, and they haven't had to come back from a game half a world away. So that helps as well. Um, I'm going for the Suns narrowly, and that gives us one different. And let's move on to Saturday afternoon in Perth, uh, 2.35 local time, 4.35 on the Eastern Seaboard. Fremantle taking on Port Adelaide. A bit of an eight-point game, this one. Yeah, Another game, isn't it interesting how evenly pitched these games are this round? Mm. And Fremantle, you've got to respect their form, recent form anyhow. Their win against Collingwood is one of the wins of the season, is it not? It is. By any team. So on home turf, again, Port Adelaide, the fact that they've come back from... Shanghai, far less impact than St Kilda because they're used to it, they know the process and it is an eight-point game but I'm going to back Fremantle at home. This is very much a team name first is team pick first game for myself. The loss of Rory Lobb for the year is a big loss. That's huge and Alex Pearce. Yeah, look, they are big losses, no question. There's a few players that... Port Adelaide have almost got right to come back into the team, but they're not going to play just yet. Dixon might be back in the sandful. Hamish Hartlett, not quite yet. And Ollie Wines, I think, would have played, except for the idea that it's on particularly hard ground over there at Optus Oval. So they're going to spare him as well. So maybe a week too early mm. for Port to launch a a serious, or a couple of weeks too early, for a serious assault on a win in Perth, I'm going to stick with Fremantle. Yeah, it's, it's real 50-50, this one, for me, because Pierce and Lobb are massive losses, one one at either end, or you know, one in the ruck and one down back. And Lobb had just started playing really good football in the ruck, just, just when he got his foot injury. Correct. Um, the other thing I, I think about with this one is the Port's record in Perth isn't too bad. I think they've gone about 50-50 in games in Perth over the last five or so years. So um, they they don't mind playing in Perth. Uh, They're familiar with it. They've had success there. I think this is going to be really close. I reckon this could be the closest game of the round. Um, They've uh, they've had uh, that that memorable final there. Was that 2014, I think, yeah, when Port um, came over the top and, and knocked Freo out of the final. So they've had some pretty memorable stouches. I'm going for Freo, but only just. I reckon this one will be decided by less than a kick. 
All right, let's uh, return to Melbourne and Saturday evening, Marvel Stadium, 7.25pm. It is Carlton, fresh off their second win for the season under caretaker coach David Teague, taking on the Western Bulldogs, who have had the week off. What happens? Another toss of the coin. Mm. Amazing round of football, isn't it? Yeah. We tipped poorly last round, got two out of six, and this isn't looking more difficult on paper. Maybe that will be our salvation. I'm going to tip the Western Bulldogs. Look, Carlton were fantastic, but on the back of the performance of Patrick Cripps, is that repeatable? Do Bulldogs have somebody to go with him that can do the job? And likewise, it'd be great to see him just go head-to-head with Bond and Pelly. I don't know if that will happen, but I guess there are times it look like it's happening. I just think that Bulldogs probably have more midfield depth than Carlton. I, I like the idea of that Bond and Pelly can lead that midfield to a win and Again, it's going to be a close fourth thing. A great opportunity for Carlton to win two in a row. Mark Murphy is expected back for the Blues, so that will add to their midfield depth. I just think that the way Carlton won that game, fantastic as it was, surely homework done during the week by the Bulldogs will indicate exactly who needs to be short-circuited to prevent a repeat. And with a little bit of hard work done on their defensive side of game, and I don't think Beveridge has ever shied away from that. They can win it. Uh, the other point here, too, is that Carlton's only other win of a season, of course, came Against at the, the Bulldogs', Bulldogs yeah. expense. And yeah, I, very you, good know, point. you wouldn't want to be uh, looking back at the end of the year and seeing that Carlton have won you know, three or four games and two of them were against your club. So, like Essendon back when St Kilda beat them twice in one year back in... I do remember that, 1980. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. 79 or 80. Yeah, I think it was four wins St Kilda had, two, two of them against, against Essendon. Essendon. One of them the... Uh, coldest game ever at Waverley. Correct. And the other one, the uh, Phil Carmen headbutting Graham Carberry game. Yes. Yep. Oh, yes, I remember them. Don't worry. Um yeah, like you, I'm going for the Bulldogs. But uh, the Blues, absolutely a chance in this game. So, uh, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of very, very evenly poised games in round 13. One more of which we have to discuss, and it is down at Blundstone Arena in Hobart on Sunday afternoon, and is North Melbourne taking on GWS. Yeah, it's just it, you couldn't hand-pick. This is like a, a, a sort of a, an undercard for a world title bout of well-matched games of football. It's like they've been hand-picked against each other. If you told me North were playing at Blundstone, pick an opponent that would be a 50-50 bet against them, I'd almost come up with GWS. Mm. GWS are the superior team, but North Melbourne have started playing really good football, and Blundstone makes it a hard trip for GWS. It's a significant home ground advantage, that one. Do you know North have only lost to three sides down there? Sydney, GWS, and West Coast. The West Coast one was by a kick, um, and Sydney, I think, has beaten them three times narrowly. So it's a significant advantage. Have they, they've played there once this year, North and lost, haven't they? Uh, to Sydney. Oh, that's right. It was to Sydney. Yeah, of course. So... I'm going to tip North Melbourne in this one because not only do they have an advantage down there, but they started playing good football. Little interesting point here. When was the last time somebody coached against his brother? Uh, Brad Scott against Chris Scott? No, coaching and playing. Oh, I see what you mean. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a tricky one, isn't it? Maybe it's never happened. Um, The Roses at some stage? I'm sure sure it has happened. Might be a quiz question for us. Um, So we're tipping North Melbourne. They've Obviously, they've got a big loss in Sean Higgins, but I know they covered it last week. They will have to, you know, life without him for the best part of two months is going to be more difficult. That being said, I think that they're going to get big domination in the ruck. I, I think Mumford is absolutely done. Put a fork in him. You know, I, I, I know that he's talismanic and I know that he gives them a lot of confidence when he's around the ball and he's dangerous, but he's not keeping up with the play very well. Mm. And he's been thrashed by Riley O'Brien, thrashed by Max Gorn. I think Goldstein can similarly control this game 
at rucks and around the ground and lead north to a win. I'm I'm tempted to go with you on this one, but in the end, I think um, GWS. We keep building them up as oh, gee, you know, they're a danger, and then they let you down. And last week was a a letdown, and they can't afford to drop two in a row. You know, if they want to stay top four, this is a game they need to win. They have won down there before. Um, they look like losing Nick Haynes, which is a uh, an important loss to that defensive setup. But However, Whit- Whitfield will come back though. Um, yeah, will he? No, I'm not sure he will. Okay. Uh, Toby Green will come back though. Yeah. Uh, look, if they got Whitfield as well, that'd make a huge difference. Um, Green, I'm pretty sure Green will be there, so he's important. They've got to keep winning GWS for credibility's sake as well as to maintain that top four spots. So I know the Roos have a great record down there. They appear to have found some form, sadly a little too late for their top eight prospects. But uh, I think it'll be tight, but I think the Giants will end up winning. So we've got uh, we've got a couple different this round, Finey. Uh, what are our current tallies, by the 65 way? 65 apiece. It's 66, actually, I think. Oh, sorry, 67 apiece. No, 67. We got two last week. Okay, I think it might be 68, but anyway, we'll sort that out. We're level anyway. Yeah, I think it was 65. Sorry, 67 apiece. We've got a couple different, so uh, let's see who ends up with the uh, more accurate predictions for this round. That's the preview of round 13, done and dusted. Let's finish things off. On Footyology, the final word. All right, let's wrap it up. We can announce the winners of our latest competition. Finey? Runners up first. Damien Morgan, this is who you want to send down the slide for the big freeze. I like this. Mick Fanning with the shark fin on. Would have been good. Oh, yeah. To have him (laughs) swimming around. Now, there was one from Patricia, and I'm great to have female listeners and female contestants, which is very good. I don't know whether you'll like this one, Rowan. And that mm-hmm. was, I wanted to send you down there. Why? To freeze your moustache off. Oh, come on. I steel side bottom complimented my moustache on air on Monday night. Well, not everybody loves the moustache, apparently. And Patricia mm. wanted the mode to go and thought mm. the best way would be to send you down the slide <laughs> head first. Would you have liked that? Not a lot, no. So the mo had to go for Patricia. Oh, ordinary stuff. Um, but the winner was our mate... From uh, he was runner up last week, and that was Damo. And this week he gets the win because he put Clive Palmer down the f- the slide. Now he's got plenty of money to dry off with, apparently. Would he have plenty of money left after frittering it at the uh, federal elections? Yes, unfortunately, he still has it. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> and I think he don't know whether he'd fit down the slide, Clive. They would have had to b- widen the slide. Oh, just buy a new one. But the big hope was that, um, you know, as he came out, maybe his ego would have shrunk a little bit. Because I know what would have shrunk. (laughs) (laughs) Shrinking. I don't want to think about Clive Palmer's genitalia, thanks very much. We shan't. This week's competition, back on the back of Patricia's Mo Must Go for Rowan Connolly, past or present, who's got the greatest Mo ever seen on the football field? (laughs) All right. There's been some beauties. Yeah. We, we we want an explanation as to why. Yeah, that's right. Think handlebar, think zapatas, you know. Think them all. Think choppers. But there's been some beauties, and we want to know the best mo in football, past or present. Okay, so not just facial hair, specifically moustaches. Moustaches, okay. stashes, stashes. All right, you can uh, email your entries uh, to footyology.com.au. The email address is info at footyology.com.au. You'll find it on the footyology.com.au website. Please, um, and some photographic evidence would be good too. We can look them up, but... um yeah, give us a photo to uh, to strengthen your argument, and uh, the winner will receive a magnificent T-shirt from Andrews Hamburgers and a cap to boot. That is a limited edition Andrews Hamburgers T-shirt and cap. And I'll see whether I can get some Nick Spartels and Buildco windsheeters in or T-shirts they've got as well in the upcoming weeks because you wore that, and Scott Pendlebury commented on it. So your, your appearance is getting quite the comment on. In fact, your Rage Against the Machine T-shirt yeah. 
Oh, I love. Oh, you do like that, don't you? It's the Battle of Los Angeles um, album cover. You know why I love it? Because it reminds me of a great moment, Peter Garrett, when I went to see Midnight Oil at mm. the Sydney Mine Music Bowl. Yeah. And he put one arm and the crowd, it was there for some sort of charity. Yeah. He put the arm up and he said, disarm now. Yeah. And what did he say next? Uh, he put the other arm up and said, dead arm later. <laughs> Uh, very good. Uh, well, I'm glad you mentioned my Rage Against the Machine Battle of Los Angeles t-shirt finding because uh, that provides the perfect segue to finish off with a bit of music. My favourite track off this album, it's their third album, 1999. Uh, get into it if you haven't heard it. Here is Rage Against the Machine and Sleep Now in the Fire. We'll see you on Sunday evening. <laughs> 